Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and this is Oral Valley Catholic. Can you remember back to November 8, 2016? Uh, it was the culmination of a particularly nasty presidential campaign. That was Election Day in 2016. And if you remember, uh, the, the back and forth between the candidates Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump really got out of hand. It was a new low for American politics. But the real casualty of that election were the pollsters, because if you remember, they had overwhelmingly predicted that Hillary Clinton would be the next president of the United States. One pollster said uh, it was like kicking a 37-yard field goal in the National Football League. You just knock, Hillary Clinton was just not going to miss it. There was one polling group called the Princeton Election Consortium, PEC, that gave Hillary Clinton a 98 to 90%, 99% chance of winning. The director of that was a, a Stanford-trained neuroscientist named Samuel Wang, and he said, and I quote, if Trump wins, I will eat a bug. Well, there is no record of whether or not he actually ate a bug. But by the end of the day, a lot of things had changed about Americans and how they thought about polls and what social science had missed. And today, we're going to talk about the difference between the moral understanding of the human being and the scientific understanding of the human being. And at the heart of it, is the way that social science has infiltrated its way into our culture, our politics, and our way of life. And then, obviously, what does the gospel have to say? So stay tuned for more. I recently finished a book entitled, We Built Reality. How Social Science Infiltrated Culture, Politics, and Power by Jason Blakely. Dr. Blakely is a, a, a social scientist at Pepperdine University, and he summarizes his book this way. This book also offers a roadmap of how social science helped build the world we currently inhabit, a world of scientism and everything from our practices of courtship to the way we police our neighborhoods. Scientism forms nothing less than a uniquely modern type of culture and power. Where earlier societies suffered abuses of various kinds of authority, clerical, political, tribal, and familial, modern societies alone experience the abuse of authority in the name of science. And his target in the book, or one of his targets, is homo economicus. That is... Uh, the human person as basically a haggler, always looking for whatever uh, pleases them, what is ever the, the best thing for the person in an economic sense. And so we're going to talk about the history of, of uh, the understanding of, of society and how we have transformed from an understanding of the human person as a moral agent in a moral context uh, to a human agent as a machine that just calculates and makes choices. So is man a moral decision maker or is man a machine? 
this is a very short, very broad brush um, uh, painting of what uh, the last few centuries since the 17th century uh, have given us and how we, in our self-understanding and where we are today with the social sciences. And so we go back, according to Dr. Blakely, to John Locke, an English moral philosopher uh, who wrote the second treatise on government in 1609. His basic, uh, he's one of the basic architects of this understanding of the human person as an individualistic, self-reliant negotiator in a state of nature. Every individual working against every individual, um, making alliances when you need them, breaking them when you need to break them. And what Locke said about the human person as the self-reliant negotiator, he said society can't survive on self-interest alone. And so that the culture uh, had the obligation to cultivate what he called social sentiments uh, in all of its citizens so that there was this moral framework that uh, worked against, militated against, the self-reliant individualistic impulses of the human person. About two centuries later, and mostly I think people who have a, uh, a understanding of, um, of economics are familiar with the name uh, Adam Smith, who wrote a classic text on, on economics. But his last read book was a book on moral philosophy called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, building on uh, Locke's understanding of uh, our need to have an intact culture means there has to be something more that uh, pulls us together than, than every single person uh, seeking out their own self-interest. That book was published in 1817. And he said that a society of economic interests had to be balanced by sentiments of solidarity. So, you know, famously in, in his understanding of economics, the idea that self-interest, which was collapsed basically to a, a probably an impoverished notion of the uh, early church's notion of what greed and avarice was, uh, that that had to be balanced within a moral frameworks of social solidarity, what Adam Smith in his theory of moral sentiments called fellow feeling. You know, it was very influential in the 19th century. And if you remember anything about 19th century literature, you remember the story, A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Ghost Story by Charles Dickens, where this arch capitalist, Ebenezer Scrooge, which uh, Dickens came to that name by screwing and gouging. He put those names together to get the name Scrooge. And if you remember that this is a heartless capitalist that has no affection for anybody, but his heart is turned by fellow feelings, sentiments, especially the young crippled boy, uh, Tiny Tim. So by the end of the, of the book, A Christmas Carol, or if you watched uh, any of the versions and uh, movies about it, is Dickens' heart is softened and changed by his fellow feeling, by his sentiments for the needs of Tiny Tim. And uh, Dickens, Dickens' literature was very much about the needs of, uh, of fellow feeling and social sentiment in an increasingly harsh, 
19th century industrial England. You know, a long ways from the agricultural world of the Middle Ages. And so Locke and Smith, Dickens in literature, are trying to accommodate a, a growing modern economy uh, with this uh, social sense, this moral sense of what social justice is, which is how it, it comes into Protestantism in the 20th century, um, in uh, Dickens's literature and Adam Smith's writings. But something changed in the 20th century. Uh, and what changed was moving from moral philosophy, which is a study of how human beings ought to act, that there is some final end for a human being, and that is as a moral creature, to a scientistic, uh, they want to call it science, but it's a scientistic way of looking at human beings. And what's the difference between moral philosophy and, uh, and a scientific way of looking at human beings in the social sciences? Well, moral philosophy has in it um, Aristotle's uh, final causation. If you remember from the last podcast, Aristotle talked about material, uh, instrumental, formal, and final cause. Material is what we're made of. Formal is what the, our image is, what, what makes us individual human beings apart from simply the particles or atoms in our body. Um, the instrumental cause is how do we get that way, but the final cause is what we're made for. And so moral philosophy has implicitly this understanding that a human person is a person made for uh, virtue or moral action. And the three dominant versions in the 19th century of moral philosophy was Immanuel Kant's deontological ethics, which was simply, this is the rule, do it. And he, he relied on his proof as what was called a categorical imperative. There are some things you just do. And so if you're just a compulsive rule follower, you're the person Immanuel Kant is describing. If you follow the line of Jeremy Bentham or uh, John Stuart Mills, who are what Elizabeth Anscombe, a 20th century philosopher, would call consequentialists, they would call it utilitarianism. It's you make a decision of, of doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. There's great criticisms of looking at morality like this. But the Catholic understanding of morality really goes back to Aristotle, is that we're made for virtue. It's not just rule following. It's not just the greatest good. But at the heart of it is this end, this final end, this telos uh, in, in Aristotle. What kind of person are your moral decisions making you? Are they making you more human or less human? But what happens when you abandon an avowedly moral framework for decision making and you instead decide that human beings really are just uh, predictable, that there is a science to human behavior and that is the big change in the 20th century. What um, Dr. Blakely calls homo economicus, uh, man the economic, basically the man the economic machine. That it's just cold calculation. 
you may clothe it in morality, but really it's all self-serving. I used to have a law partner that claimed that. No matter what uh, ethics you cloaked it all in, is really all you were doing was taking care of yourself. So the difference fundamentally between moral philosophy and social science is moral philosophy has some sense of what makes you a good person. Either you follow the rules or you try to do the greatest good for people or in virtue understanding the decisions you make are transforming you into a virtue, virtuous person who just knows what the right thing to do is. So, so science sees that you're simply the product of, uh, of natural processes that could be understood. And the probably the most prominent figure there from the 1960s was a Nobel laureate, Gary Becker, who said that economics provides a, quote, unified framework for understanding all human behavior, end quote. So for Becker, he could use economics to explain choices in marriage or crime patterns, uh, rather controversial even today that you can boil these things down to simple economic uh, uh, equations. But according to Becker, the crucial insight of economics was a logic or a structure of choice in which humans consistently ranked and sought to maximize their individual consumption preferences. Well, so we'll get back to it, but Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, was just ranking her um, individual consumption preferences. Adolf Hitler was ranking his, and Jeff Bezos ranks his. Does that make much sense? But this is where this idea, this understanding goes to in a value-free understanding of human behavior. Well, University of Chicago economist named Stephen Levitt and a journalist, Stephen Dubner, wrote a series of books which you're most likely familiar with called Freakonomics. And it was taking Becker's understanding of uh, this uh, boiling down human behavior to essentially all economic choices uh, that they developed in the series of books and videos about Freakonomics. And here's what Blakely has to say about uh, one of their examples in that book. And I just thought I couldn't say it better than he did, so I'm going to read it to you. A mere three years before the 2008 financial meltdown, Edder's point, who can forget that? Levitt and Dubner argued in their most popular book that real estate agents who self-interestedly cheated clients out of the most competitive prices for their homes were simply being rational. Levitt and Dubner made this case by citing statistical data showing that a significant percentage of real estate agents in the United States sold their own properties at higher rates than those of their clients. They then proceeded to argue that a science of choice explained why this was a predictable, even inevitable result. This was because agents at the time received 1.5% of the purchase price on a residential property. Therefore, a hefty difference of $10,000 in home price for a client was only a measly $150 for the agent. In other words, realtors rationally ranking their preferences had no compelling incentive to work harder for their clients only to earn such a small differential. With such an incentive structure in place, the science of economics determined that realtors would predictably expend more effort to secure the best deals 
on their own homes and properties rather than on those of their clients. Levitt and Dubner presented these conclusions in the dispassionate, objective voice of science. Realtors would, who consistently fetched worse deals for their clients than for themselves were, according to these authors, in no way egoistic, greedy, lacking empathy, or otherwise shirking their moral obligations to their clients. The point here is the quote from the book, is that these real estate agents are not bad people, they wrote, but simply that they are people. And people inevitably respond to incentives, in this case, financial incentives. So is that how you see yourself? You're just an economic creature making self-interested choices in a moral free environment? Blakely's point is, is when you start describing human beings like that, you start empowering this radical individualism that's already alive and tearing apart our country. So the question I posed earlier, are Mother Teresa, Jeff Bezos, and Adolf Hitler really all the same people? Just persons maximizing preferences in a value-free environment? In the Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton 2016 election, did social science get that wrong? Is there something fundamentally wrong with an idea of looking at voters or workers or real estate agents as fundamentally just economic machines? Here's the question I put to you. Is man made in the image of God or in the image of a machine? We're gonna turn now to the letter of James. Social sciences have taken a preeminent place in American culture from either pollsters predicting the outcome of elections or scientists trying to explain all human behavior according to a, a pattern that can be studied and isolated for variables and then human behavior predicted. And there is some point to prediction of human behavior, but Dr. Blakely points out that when we buy into these studies that tell us what human beings think, we are also being told what to think by these studies. They build reality. They build how we see ourselves and how we vote. That's the shock of the Trump election because the explanation of the pollsters after that election, if you remember, was that people lied to them because they were embarrassed about voting for Donald Trump. How could you prove that? I don't know, but it's the biggest problem of social sciences, polls, and all of these predictors like Freakonomics that want to tell you how to behave. How should we respond to all of this? I think that we as Catholics have to pull value-free approaches to human reality back into the area of values and judge what social sciences do, do by what our cultural values are. And we are part of the discussion of what our cultural values are, especially when it comes to human dignity. And this is about what the first letter of James, chapter two, brings to the table in theology and also in our proposition for the larger culture of philosophers, readers, thinkers, politicians, and yes, even social science 
scientists. And here's what the letter of James says in our second reading. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you adhere to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if a man with gold rings and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here, please, while you say to the poor one, stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil designs? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, did not God choose those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? That's the end of this reading from uh, James. Do you think a Roman emperor could talk like that or any of the Greek philosophers? The pagans just didn't think like that. What brought the issue of human dignity and human equality into the Western cultural milieu is Christianity and its roots in Judaism, the radical equality of human beings. So I want to talk to you a little bit about theology because it's the sine qua non within the church. Here are answers to some serious questions. Why do we love the poor? because we're Christians. Why do we not kill or abort our children? Because we're Christians. Why do we love creation? Because we're Christians. Why do we love workers, people at the border, people on death row, the outcast, uh, the uh, people who struggle with same-sex attractions, people who are captive to sin? Because we are Christians. And so this is the orientation of our community, a radical openness to those who love God. And so when we witness in the larger culture about our Catholic faith, I would put to you that real evangelization is reminding others of the fundamental dignity of the human person, something that has been consistently promulgated by the popes in all of the writings from Rerum Novarum to Fratelli Tutti, the equality, human dignity, solidarity of the human race. And it's rooted very much in our Christian, uh, our Christian message and how it is that we witness to the world. It's what turned the Roman Empire upside down. When you criticize Christians, it's because we don't live our own gospel. So how do we talk to those who don't share our faith about these issues about human dignity? So originally, I think through the, the centuries, uh, Christians have used philosophy, the love of wisdom, uh, to talk to the larger world about um, about human dignity and human equality. But you know, philosophy has really gone through some, some sea changes. Uh, philosophy principally now argues about whether you can know anything. It, the reason nobody reads modern philosophy, uh, I don't know the last time you read Richard Rorty or, uh, or John Dewey, uh, or Frederick Nietzsche for that matter. The reason people read uh, philosophy is for some love of wisdom. But if it's just arguments about why you can't really know anything and you're really on your own, 
What's the wisdom in that? So how do we talk to the social sciences? How do we talk to the largest, larger culture? One of the things I want to suggest to you is that we pay attention first to papal documents for within our conversations about human dignity within the church. But the second thing that I think is largely overlooked, and I suggest to you, it's the books you read. Do you remember in the conversation about the growth of a moral philosophy, and especially following Adam Smith? How many people read Adam Smith? Well, people who were interested, I think, in uh, the philosophical justifications for capitalism when philosophy was still much more respected than it is today. But who did the most important work about challenging the excesses of capitalism in uh, post-industrial England in the middle of the 19th century? Charles Dickens. Just think of any of his books about the poor. If you and your kids watch A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol is a direct challenge to laissez-faire uh, capitalism, uh, value-free capitalism. I know a lot of people who believe in capitalism. None of them believe that it should exist in a value-free environment. Because what human literature shows, whether it's Charles Dickens or I would say, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky out of Russia, or any number of writers, is that if you do not pay attention to the poor, if you do not pay attention to the complaints of the working people, if you do not pay attention to those who feel disconnected from the dominant power holders uh, in, in whatever society you live in, uh, violent revolution follows. Social solidarity, and I'd say subsidiarity. Solidarity is, we're all in this together. Subsidiarity is pushing down control of local issues uh, to the smallest possible uh, denominator, cities, towns, counties, parishes, uh, in, in culture. People have to have a stake in the world that they live in. Human dignity is not simply a theological idea. Uh, human dignity is the basis for a stable culture. And so when we read the letter of James about dignity, about acceptance, about solidarity in those first century Christian communities, well, there was a reason the Roman Empire had civil war after civil war after civil war, because the only people who had anything at stake were legionnaires and legionaries and their generals. We think differently in a democracy. So here's what I'd say. We need to know our theology. We need to know our history of, of uh, social justice within our Catholic community and be attentive to its presence in the Christian voice in our scriptures. Perhaps the best way to encounter it is through reading good literature. Read the Brothers Karamazov. Don't rush through it. It's a, it's a slog, but it's powerful. Uh, and any of those novels which take on social issues and try to talk about a philosophy, a wise way of life through the lives of these fictional characters. Uh, and if you think about literature like that, then you see literature plays a fundamental role in how human beings think about themselves. And I'd expand it to not just literature, 
but also to uh, music, the kind of music you listen to. Uh, is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony really on the same level of, of some songs that are really degrading about human sexuality? Do you bring good music into your life or do you just listen to garbage? What you watch on TV, the, the films and movies that form your imagination. If at the end of it, do you say, I want any of those people as a friend? My friend, you've decided whether this is a good movie or a bad movie. Don't be afraid of ideas. But literature is a way, movies are a way, films are a way, Netflix is a way that you encounter the, powerful, the power of ideas lived out in reality. So let's bring all this to a conclusion. I've been on one of my reading sprees lately, and another book I finished was The Captive Mind by Czeslaw Milos. Milos was a poet from Poland. He lived in Poland when the Nazis invaded. He lived in Poland when the communists came in. He kind of cooperated with the communists. He was like a lot of Poles. Um, he was a Catholic, but not practicing. He was a communist, but not believing. And he wrote in The Captive Mind about uh, how it is that the communists sought to dominate the imaginations of the intelligentsia in Poland. And here's what he said. A true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, we're not going to be judged. That's Czeslaw Milos. He came back to the Catholic faith after he defected and towards the end of his life, and he taught at American universities. Well, Marxist dialectic is that there is this science to understanding history. Social science, that there's this science to understand, understanding human behavior. And the reality is there are some patterns in human history, but not reducible to a formula. And there are patterns in human behavior, but not simply reducible to a simple formula. It's how we form values. And when social scientists form our values by saying, oh, for instance, Hillary Clinton's going to win the election, just stay at home, which is the big complaint a lot of people had about what pollsters have done in our electoral process. Social scientists have overstepped any reasonable bounds of social utility. So how is it that we come to what our values are? What does it mean to be free from people telling you what to do? What James Blakely said, Dr. Blakely in his book, We Built Reality, is part of the reason that we have anti-maskers, anti-vacciners, uh, use a vaccine. And some people have serious reasons, uh, respiratory issues or other health issues where they avoid masks or vaccines. But some of it is just this absolute distrust of what they're being told by science. And then they use scientific arguments to counter the other scientists. It is, I think everybody uh, agrees, a mess. And when social scientists undermines the authority of biology, immunology, epidemiology, we have a problem with how science is used in our culture. So here's what Blakely said we ought to pay attention to. Towards the end of his book, We Build Reality, which is a nice short read and a way to understand social science from a perspective of a social scientist. Here's what he said. One of the chief resources in the regard to what it means to be a human is that the humanities insist that there is an art to interpreting human behavior that is never reducible to a strict or exact science. 
Although it is not scientific, this art of the humanities is not subjective or arbitrary either. Rather, it's an art practiced by many historians, literary scholars, cultural theorists, and even some rogue social scientists. Only the art of interpretation can begin to restore our culture to a clearer form of self-understanding that escapes the current delusions and disappointments of our reigning scientism. Only this will help correct the frightening tendency in our present hour to reject the rightful authority of natural science about ecology, about vaccines, while at the same time submitting uncritically to the scientism of popular social theories. Read Homo Economicus or your local political poll. In the past of the humanities and interpretive decisions lies a new future. But a key question remains, where are the new humanists? Who are telling us our stories? Who's writing our music? These do as much Christian culture to form how people think uh, as uh, social scientists pretends to do. Authors like Fyodor Dostoevsky, Charles Dickens, these people talk more about what it means to be a human than any social scientist has to offer. This has been The View from Oral Valley Catholic. If you liked what you heard, repost it, hit like, tell your friends. God bless you, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.